This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Nora Flaherty. People place bets on it. Nominees are covered in the tabloids, and it's given out in a black tie gala that's broadcast nationally on TV. Every year when it comes around, it becomes a subject of sometimes obsessive interest in the media. Is it the Oscars? The Grammys? No. It's England's Man Booker Prize, given every year for a new work of fiction written in English. For Americans, the Booker Prize, which is what it's usually called, might not be any more significant than any of the other metallic spots that adorn the front of the latest works of classy fiction. But in England, the Booker Prize is very much of interest to a surprisingly large number of people, including people that might not necessarily be interested in actually reading the kinds of novels that tend to win the prize. Nicola Pitchford says that that's because the Booker Prize is not about novels. It's about English identity. Pitchford is an associate professor of English and comparative literature at Fordham University. She is working on a book about several cultural controversies in post-Thatcher England. Pitchford is my guest today on Fordham Conversations. She joined me earlier this week in the studio to talk about why an annual literary prize attracts the kind of attention that's usually reserved for more, well, popular culture. Nicola Pitchford, thanks for coming in. Thank you for having me. Now, we'll just start out with a very basic question. What is the Booker Prize? Okay. Um, It's actually now officially called the Man Booker Prize. It's a literary prize in Britain, an annual literary prize. It's a very big deal. It's been given since the late 60s. It's a prize for a novel written in English, published in the previous year. And it's open to novelists from anywhere in the world except the U.S., basically. English-speaking countries that were formerly part of the British Commonwealth. It's uh, much talked about in Britain and an object of kind of popular interest and not just exclusively literary community. So what kind of interest do you see? It's not quite like literary Oscars, although journalists in Britain use that metaphor. But it's the, when the shortlist is announced, it's you know front page news in all the newspapers, on the TV news. The ceremony itself is broadcast live on the BBC, I think it's BBC Two at the moment. And it's much written about in not just the sort of upmarket newspapers, but even the tabloids like to cover the authors, cover their personal lives, eke out whatever controversy they can each year regarding the prize. And it, it becomes a way of debating what's going on in English culture, because even though it's an international prize, I think the English media and the English sort of literary establishment like to think of it as their own. And so there's always controversy about whether the English novel is still the property of the English people or whether it's sort of been, quote, taken over by uh, post-colonial writers, basically. Tell me about the origins of the prize. Where did it first come from? Sure. It started in 1968. It has actually a kind of interesting history in relation to British colonial history, because the Booker Corporation was a British corporation that operated primarily in Guiana, British Guiana in the sort of Caribbean, Latin America, South America, sugar corporation. And as Guiana gained independence, the Booker Corporation realized that it was going to need to move most of its operations back to Britain, that its presence was essentially too deeply implicated in colonial economics. And so it wanted to get publicity in Britain because while it was a huge corporation, it didn't have any name recognition 
back in Britain. It was basically agribusiness. It started with sugar and then had, had diversified in many different ways. The managing director somehow came up with this idea of sponsoring a major literary prize. It was supposed to be modeled on the Prix Goncourt in France. And one of the managing directors of Booker's close friends, his golf partner apparently, was Ian Fleming, the author who wrote the James Bond books. And at the time, he was looking for someone to buy out his copyright. And so Booker began a book publishing division. Um, They started off, I think, with just the James Bond books, Ian Fleming and Agatha Christie. They bought her franchise. And that was, you know, sort of step one to making Booker a household name in the UK. And sponsoring this literary prize was step two. What what are some of the books that we might know of that have won Booker Prizes? Well, there's a long list of famous, successful novelists who have scandalously not won the Booker Prize. But Salman Rushdie's Midnight's Children, which won in, uh, oh, I think 1982, 81, was one of the most successful Booker Prize winners in terms of becoming a worldwide bestseller, which it had not been before it won. Jim Kutsir, the South African writer who won the Nobel two years ago, um, has won the Booker Prize twice. He won with Life and Times of Michael Kay in the early 80s, and he won in the early years of this decade with Disgrace, his novel about post-apartheid South Africa. Um, There have been British winners, too. Uh, Well, Rushdie, of course, has been for many years um, a British novelist, despite being born in India. But a lot of the winners have, in fact, um, kind of sunk into obscurity after winning the Booker Prize, just as a lot of the most talked about contemporary novelists in Britain have not ever won it. Um, And that's one of the ongoing topics of, of sort of controversy. And certainly there's been a preponderance of male winners over the years, um, just as there have been a preponderance of white winners. And this, too, has been a, a topic of conversation. If I go to the bookstore and I see that a book has won the Booker Prize, I don't tend to give it a lot more sway than I do, say, if it's won any of the other many, many prizes that there might be a little gold spot on a book for. Right. But for English people, as you say, it is a very big deal. And you say that it's connected in people's minds to the whole idea of of Britishness. What does that mean? Well, that's a huge question, of course, Um, more and more so. And and certainly a Booker Prize winner is generally thought to be guaranteed to be a quality read in the sense that it hovers uncomfortably on the boundary between marking out ambitious, difficult, worthy literature and literature that's readable. Um, and, you know, if if the novel that's chosen one year seems too easy, too accessible, they'll be grumbling about that. And the next year they'll choose a very experimental novel and they'll be grumbling about that. In terms of Britishness, it's it's a very touchy point because it's a prize that seeks to reward the best novel written in English basically around the world except, again, by U.S. authors – And yet it's a prize that's given in England. The judges are usually English or British. The money funding it is British. The press coverage often becomes quite nationalistic in Britain. And if uh, someone who is not British wins too many years in a row, there's a sense of the more conservative commentators in the newspapers will say things like, we are allowing our culture to be taken over by foreigners. One of the things that fascinates me about the Booker Prize, I have to say, is the way that the press in Britain 
get really inflammatory about it and also talk much more openly and sometimes to me in a much more openly ugly way about race and high culture and nationality in terms of articulating sentiments about in more or less veiled ways uh, nobody can write as well as the English can and those authors are not really English they're mimicking English novels and English ways of writing. Certainly when Kazuo Ishiguro won the Booker Prize for the Remains of the Day, the novel that was made into a movie, very atmospheric, very in some ways very English Merchant and Ivory movie about a butler in the world years sort of following World War Two. There were critics who said it's a fake English novel. Ishiguro, who was born in Japan, although he was raised in Britain, was in in some sort of snitty quarters criticized for imitating or mimicking Englishness in his novel. Famously, there's a moment in the novel when there's a social gaffe that the butler serves port to one of the guests, and that's never done. Port is never served for you. You always pour your own port and pass it in one direction around the table. That's the tradition. And there were conservative critics who said if Ishiguro had really been English, he would have known that. Well, I mean, I'm English, I certainly didn't know that, but that may just show I'm not raised properly. You're listening to Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. I'm talking today with Nicola Pitchford. She's an associate professor of English and comparative literature at Fordham, and she is working on a book about several cultural controversies in post-Thatcher England. We're talking today about the Man Booker Prize. It's an English literary prize that's been given in the past to Margaret Atwood, Ian McEwen, and Roddy Doyle, among others. Pitchford says that there's a lot of public interest in the prize, and it gets a lot of attention in the media, because it's connected to a whole set of ideas about what it means to be British. I asked her whether what the prize says about that is something that people disagree on. Yeah, absolutely. And that's one of the things that's refreshing about it. It does engender debate. It opens up you know, public conversation about what should English culture be, what should British culture be, how internationalized should it be. And certainly you see radically different responses to different authors in sort of left-leaning media versus more conservative media. And those are, are more clearly demarked, I think, too, in Britain, although I think in a common sense way, most of us know in the US which are more conservative papers, etc., which are more progressive. I've written about one of the more controversial wins when uh, the Scottish novelist James Kelman won the Booker Prize in, I, I think it was 97, for a novel called How Late It Was, How Late. There was huge outcry in some quarters in the media because it was a novel that was written more or less in a literary version and a highly crafted literary version, but of a working class Glaswegian, that is from Glasgow in Scotland, dialect that included very regular use of the F word. Somebody actually bothered to count and there were more than 4,000 uses of the F word in the novel, as well as liberal use of the C word. And it was unclear whether it was the Scottishness of the novel and the fact that it was written throughout. There's no narrator who speaks standard English while the characters speak various versions of Scots. It's written throughout. The narrator speaks the same way the characters speak. And it was unclear whether that was what really irritated some of the more conservative critics in England or whether it was the obscenity of the novel. What was interesting was that in denouncing the novel, they talked a lot less about the actual novel and much more about 
basically the the most pernicious stereotypes of Scots as drunks, as irascible fighters, as people who are not fully civilized in a way. You know, stereotypes that go back to at least the 18th century, the early 18th century. And these are the kinds of debates that come out around the Booker Prize. And, and again, that's part of why I find it so interesting. It's not, I mean, I mean, I love reading the books themselves, some more than others, but the ways people talk about it and the ways that it attempts to bring quality literature to a broader populace and make it seem sexy, glamorous, um, you know, give it a bit of that Hollywood cachet. You know, one of the things that happens with the Booker Prize is that the high street betting shops, you know, almost that are so prevalent in where you can bet on just about anything, um, will take bets on the Booker Prize and who's going to win it this year and who's going to be on the shortlist. And it has this lovely appearance of populism. The stereotype regular guy who would go to his local betting shop actually taking an interest in novelists and writing, although it's also kind of an illusion that's very carefully constructed by the promoters of the prize, that they actually have a financial agreement with the major betting chains to have them take bets on the booker. I'm going to get back to that in a second, but I do want to ask you, you said that for liberals and conservatives in Britain, the interpretation of these sort of outsider wins of the Booker Prize is different. So conservatives are bothered by it. They feel it sort of violates this idea of, of Britain. What do liberals think about it? There's often a, a delighted embrace of the opening up of not just the literary canon, but the publishing industry too. Because still the publishing industry for um, novels in English um, outside of the U.S., it's very centralized in London, in some ways even more than before, although many of the London publishers are, of course, owned by multinational or U.S.-based corporations. So there's still an awful lot of power concentrated in the London publishing industry for novelists living elsewhere in the world. And some of the prize winners who have come from places um, you know, as non-exotic as Australia um, have said, in order to be able to make a living as a novelist, I had to get critical attention in Britain and specifically in London, and the Booker Prize helped me do that. Other voices on the left, and particularly novelists from countries that have long been considered part of the British Commonwealth, whether they are or not now, have seen the Booker as more imperial still in its construction. You know, while there may be the good financial benefit of getting noticed in the Booker Prize contest and therefore being able to get published more broadly, distributed more internationally, and in some cases even meaning you don't have to move from your homeland in order to have a career in publishing and in literature, um, there have still been a lot of ambivalence as to whether it's, you know, Britain taking uh, credit for taking control over writers from elsewhere in the world. So sort of that you're a high-quality member of the empire. Exactly. You've got the, the post-imperial stamp of the okay from the English literary establishment. And, um, of course, ideally, that shouldn't be necessary. Now, whether or not it's subsidized by the company, the idea of a person in New York going to their local OTB and betting on who's going to win um, a Pulitzer, it's pretty foreign. Why do people care so much about a book prize? You know, again, some of it is illusion, carefully cultivated illusion that this really is um, an object of popular interest. But I do think also 
that um, even for people who don't necessarily read, um, you know, so-called literary fiction, there's a longer history of investment in the idea of English high culture in in the UK and in England specifically. I mean, I, I have to say these debates about England versus the empire in the Booker Prize also play out of England versus Scotland and Wales and the north of Ireland. But in England particularly, I think there's still a long history of investment in the idea that the nation, the nation's glory is partly in its cultural production, in its books, its painters, its movies even, that England produces quality stuff. Whereas the U.S. may, beyond debate, hold sway over all the international cultural markets in economic terms. There's a lot of people across the political spectrum and from different classes even are still very much invested in the idea that, yeah, but Britain produces the quality stuff. It's national pride in some ways. You know, Britain doesn't produce, and I say this partly as a British person or as a partly British person, Britain doesn't produce great athletes very often you know, or great sports teams, but boy, we can write wonderful books, you know. We have that literary thing going. To some extent, I think there's that. Is there some parallel to this with Americans and the way we think about Americanness that might make this make more sense? I don't know because the U.S. has not dramatically lost status in the ways that Britain has in the last hundred years or so. There's not that sense of having gone so swiftly in historical terms from being able to think of yourself as the center of the universe to no longer being able to keep that illusion going. And so I think in that sense of loss or decline, um, there's been an enormous amount of thinking about national identity in Britain um, and what it means to be British, what it means to be English, um, what Britain does well, what Britain doesn't do well. And I don't think there's that same, um, in some ways, forced self-consciousness about nationality in the U.S. Well, that leads directly into actually what I was going to ask you next, which is what what is all this fuss with national identity in Britain? What does it mean to be British to different groups of people? Um, I, my sense is that for a long time, in in the years of the British Empire, it was easy enough for Britons of different classes, different regional backgrounds, even different national backgrounds, that is, you know, Scottish and uh, Welsh and Irish as well as, well as, as English, although Irish has always been um, obviously much more contested. And by Britons, you mean people from the British Isles? Yes, sorry. To, to know that they're British be- precisely because they have the empire. And um, while many of the peoples of the empire were British too, officially, there was always a relatively easy distinction to be made a painful distinction if you were not from the center of the empire um, about just what kind of Britishness you actually had access to. And of course, that became formalized when passport controls started going into place as countries became independent throughout the 20th century. And then, you know, the, the sort of the second major development, I guess, in terms of an embattled sense of Britishness in the 20th century would be the mass migration of people of color from the former British empire and still British possessions at that time, to Britain. So that Britain was, for the first time in history, no longer an almost exclusively white nation or able to think of itself as a white nation. And that too raised questions of what it means to be a Britain. 
again, you know, in many cases in fruitful and broadening ways, but also for some in anxiety producing and crisis inducing ways. So that that conversation about what British culture is has been an ongoing conversation at least since sort of the 1960s. And the Booker Prize happened to spring up sort of at that moment when the more conservative and more long-established cultural figures in Britain were saying, is this the end? Is English culture dying? Is there no longer such a thing? This is Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. Ahead this morning on Cityscape, a look at the presidential contenders from New York. That's Cityscape with George Bodarkey this morning at 7.30. We've been talking today on Fordham Conversations about the Man Booker Prize. My guest is Nicola Pitchford. Let's return now to that conversation. You say that from the beginning, the Booker Prize has, and I'm quoting, embodied fundamental cultural and national contradictions. What are you talking about there? (laughs) Some of the contradictions within Britain, within the ways that the people who sort of control public opinion or shape public opinion have presented their own interests as defining of Britain. So high culture, the novel, the literary novel specifically, and not just any novel, becomes the best of Britain. You know, becomes in some ways the epitome of what Britain can do. You know, that's a contradiction because, you know, what what percentage of people really actually read or produce or involved with literary novels? It's in Britain too, a small percentage. And yet this sense that the whole nation ought to be invested in and proud of its literary culture is one of the contradictions that keeps coming back every time there's a controversy over the Booker Prize, and particularly over whether it should be accessible to more readers, the novel that wins. English and British cultural inferiority compared to the US is always haunting the Booker Prize. And in fact, I think it was the Guardian newspaper once asked the committee that, that, that oversees the Booker Prize, why isn't it open to U.S. writers? And the answer was, well, because they'd always win. Is that really true? I, You know, I'm not sure that it is. <laughs> Obviously, it's a matter of taste, and I'm not sure that, you know, again, I, I still think that the British literary novel reading public is used to a certain, a different kind of literary novel. Um, although there have been winners who've been very thoroughly Americanized, uh, DBC Pierre certainly um, well, his, his Booker Prize winning novel was set in the U.S. Um, the most recent winner, Kiran Desai, has lived in the U.S. for many years, although she's of an Indian background. And in fact, she joked about the fact that she was really glad she hadn't taken U.S. citizenship yet because she couldn't have won the Booker Prize if she had. But certainly there's, understandably, I think, a sense of anxiety and to some extent inferiority in throughout British culture, not just high culture, as to whether it can ever stand up to the enormousness and diversity of American cultural production. I was curious why the U.S., why the prize wasn't open to to writers from the U.S. You know, I don't know the details of that history, of why that choice was made. I imagine it probably had to do with the publishing industry more than with the differences, the real differences between writers from the U.S. versus the rest of the English-speaking world. Um, You know, that the major centers of publishing for English-language work have been historically New York and London. If you're setting up a prize judged by people from the literary establishment in England, 
funded by a British company, in some sense trying to be both an international prize and a British prize, you don't want New York to get a piece of it. You talk specifically in the book that you are working on about four Booker Prize-related controversies. Tell me about those. The one that's most centrally related to the Booker Prize is uh, the case of James Kelman winning in 97 and the ways in which this brought out the the worst and most colorful xenophobia in some of the English critics. It, I mean, it, it was really fun. There was a critic for, uh, I mean, easy for me to say I'm not involved, but there was a critic for, I believe, the Daily Telegraph, which is one of the more conservative sort of upmarket new quality newspapers in Britain, who said, you know, Kalman defends his use of this kind of Glaswegian language and foul language too by saying it's the language of a particular social group. And if you outlaw that language, you are outlawing that social group. You know, you are telling them they are not acceptable. Um, it's a, you know, to me, it's a common sense argument, and it's an argument that's certainly very familiar from American debates about multiculturalism. Um, but this critic quoted Kelman saying that and then said, the problem is that the people Kelman writes about um, are not a culture, are not a civilization. They are the primordial ooze that precedes civilization. <laughs> so some of this stuff, you know, is, is actually fun to read and write about. But um, the other controversies I'm interested in are not so much directly related to the Booker, although they raise some of the same issues about changing notions of British national identity and how they get how people's anxieties about national identity get actually invested in literary culture in Britain in a way that they don't so much in the U.S. So I talk about the Satanic Verses controversy, Rushdie's novel that was published in 89, and that was in some ways a catalyst for revealing the profound split between British Muslims or many British Muslims and the power elite centered in London that, that still is an extraordinarily troubling concern now, 15, 18 years later. I write about a working class novelist called Jeanette Winterson, who became a kind of figure of cult popularity, identity politics in the mid 80s at a time when, you know, there was a right wing government in place in Britain, and many people on the left were looking for heroes. And particularly, she wrote a very funny autobiographical first novel about her experience growing up in a working-class northern town, coming out as a lesbian, and actually also growing up among evangelical Christians. And it became, and she became, enormously popular, sort of claimed as a lesbian novelist. And she was very uncomfortable with that and saw, in some ways, being taken seriously as a novelist and as an artist as incompatible with being claimed as any kind of political figure or class figure or figure identified by her sexuality. So I, I sort of write about what's at stake there. And I write about Martin Amis, who is one of the most controversial writers in the British media. Um, he's a household name. You know, friends of mine who are not particularly literary in Britain call me up and say, so what's up with Martin Amis? Particularly a moment of controversy in the mid-90s when he negotiated an unprecedentedly huge financial advance for some of his novels. And became seen as a figure who embodied Americanization, which meant in this, pardon me, but in this context meant greed, basically financial greed, and the corruption of pure culture by money and big money publishing. 
I'm assuming that, you know, like in America, in England, there's sort of a, a literary elite and there are people who read and then there are people who don't read. Absolutely. And it's just sort of a normal grouping of people. So I'm wondering, there seems to be enormous sort of mass cultural interest. And you mentioned Martin Amos and people like Martin Amos among people who might not necessarily be that into reading fine novels. Do you think it allows people to talk about something they're not really comfortable talking about or something? Absolutely. I mean, um, in some ways, that's the central premise of the work I've been trying to do is finding out what is at stake, since surely it can't only be literary novels. And so I do think it opens up um, the Booker Prize, the annual coverage of that, the uh, editorials devoted to it, etc. I think it opens up a space for talking about uh, race, for talking about multiculturalism, for talking about where Britain's going, and for talking about class, absolutely, and for how long this notion of an elite high culture might continue to be useful or not. Nicola Pitchford, thanks so much. Thank you. That was Nicola Pitchford. She's an associate professor of English and comparative literature at Fordham, and she is working on a book about several cultural controversies surrounding literature in post-Thatcher England. Why can't the English teach their children how to speak? This verbal class distinction by now should be antique. If you spoke as she does, sir, instead of the way you do... Why, you might be selling flowers, too. I beg your pardon. An Englishman's way of speaking absolutely classifies him. The moment he talks, he makes some other Englishman despise him. One common language I'm afraid we'll never get. Oh, why can't the English learn? From WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org, this has been Fordham Conversations. We are now podcasting Fordham Conversations. If you're interested in subscribing, go to WFUV.org and click on Podcasts right on the homepage. I'm Nora Flaherty. Cityscape is next. Thanks for listening, and have a great weekend.